it really is a somber time. You know, the, this, these massacres are indescribable. And, and if truly they're motivated by racial hatred, it's, it's even more horrible. I mean, we, we, we live in this time where uh, things are occurring that are, just blow your circuits. And they come at a, a frequency that is beyond expectation. Um, and, and like I said, the politicians will all make hay out of it. Both sides, they'll, you know, we need to have gun controls or not gun controls, or we need to give everyone a gun, or we need to, you know, I mean, it'll go all over the place, and, and everybody will use it for their benefit. But the reality is, we know that something's wrong, and it's in the human heart. And I think a lot of areas need to be addressed, politically and socially and everything else. But can I just mention one that affects all of us? You know, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, you've heard that you shall not kill, but I tell you, if any of you has called your brother a fool, you have already murdered in your heart. Could we just listen to how we talk about other people? Could we just listen to how we speak of other people? I mean, fool would be a compliment compared to what some of the stuff I see online. And invariably, these mass murderers have lived online and have gotten totally consumed with what's going on, that false world of electrons out there, and bought into a system of hate that's beyond comprehension. But men and women, for God's sake, we shouldn't join into that, right? How do we speak of people that disagree with us? How do we speak of people that may have voted. I'm so tired of hearing, I don't know how a Christian could have voted that way. Both ways. I hear them all. Can we, can we show respect? Can we demonstrate the love of Christ and our ability to actually talk and listen and disagree? If calling someone a fool is like murdering him, we're all mass murderers given what I read online. And so, and so, so can we start with just our speech? Can it be seasoned with grace and kindness? And can we mature to the point that, that we can have a conversation with someone and find out why they're motivated the way they do and, and, and respect people that disagree with us? I have friends that are Aggies for crying out loud. This shouldn't be this hard. So... When you read all of this and when you see the bad news, both personal and, and societal, uh, it, it's kind of easy to lose hope, isn't it? To get really discouraged. To isolate yourself into the little community where you feel safe. That's what we Christians have often done. We create these holy huddles so we don't have to deal with those people that disagree and, and, and it just feels better that way. Or, or we get into our tribe, whatever that tribe is, where we sit and all agree. Because and what we're doing is we're putting our hope in the wrong thing, right? Today we're looking again at Second Thessalonians, a little book in the Bible that is written to one of the great churches in the New Testament. It was formed by Paul and Silas in one of the missionary journeys. It was a city of a few hundred thousand, a very significant city in, in modern Rome, I mean ancient Rome. And Paul had, in a very short amount of time, created a church there and 
and it's interesting, even in that short amount of time, he'd already gotten into the issue of prophecy. In 1 Thessalonians, he is the central passage on what we call the pre-tribulational rapture, and I'll get back to that. And some of you are going to geek out because I'm finally talking about prophecy, and you're going to have be all but speaking in tongues when it's over. And some of you are going to walk out and think, what was that about? I hope we all have a great time together, right? Um, um, he's over here. Um, I'm just trying to help, you know? It's just, hey, you know, it's just, it's, it's okay. <laughs> um, so then 1 Thessalonians, he speaks of, of looking forward to the day when the dead in Christ will rise first and then those who are yet alive will join him in the air and the, what we understand is the rapture, they will meet him and be with the Lord for beginning a seven-year period of tribulation followed by the Lord's second coming, which begins a thousand-year reign on earth, followed by the great white throne of judgment. Okay, that's a quick summary of the position of theology as it relates to the end times this church is traditionally taught. It was popularized in the 20th century by C.I. Schofield in the Schofield Reference Bible. His Bible was cleaned up with the second Bible because his old one had a few sprinkled mistruths in it. And then... And then uh, the Left Behind series and Hal Lindsey popularized it. There were, although there are very serious scholars as well. I served John Walford for a number of years who wrote dozens of books on prophecy and was very balanced and careful in his thought. When you look at the issue of prophecy, there are a couple of, there are about four decisions you got to decide. First of all, and again, some of you are going to love this. Some of you just stay with me. It won't take long, okay? You got to make a decision in Scripture. Does the church replace Israel in the plan of God, or does God, according to his promise, still have things he's going to do in ethnic Israel? Okay? Does, did, did God make promises to the Jews that he will somehow keep as a demonstration of his grace? Not because they deserve it, any more than any of us do, but, but just to show his faithfulness to his promise, will God work in the nation of Israel? Uh, Many people believe in what's called replacement theology, which was originally, uh, I think, written by, by Augustine or Augustine in East Texas, named after the grass. The, um, um, Augustine said the church replaced Israel, and so the Israel was just like everybody else. They just needed to meet Christ. And certainly, a Jewish person has salvation today through meeting Jesus Christ. But we have historically understood that in spite of uh, the fact that many Jews haven't come to him, God made promises to Abraham and others that will ultimately be fulfilled as it relates to the land and the seed and the promise, okay? Secondly, you have to decide, is, is the, Lord, the rapture, the Lord coming and, and rise, meeting his people separate from the second coming? All Orthodox Christians believe that Jesus is coming back. That's, that's a part of orthodoxy. That's one of the fundamentals of the faith, if you will. Jesus is coming back. And in Austin, there was a bumper sticker when I was there that says, Jesus is coming back, and boys, he ticked, um, uh, or something like that. Uh, the, um, and, but there is a question, is the rapture, that time when he comes to gather his saints to himself, separate from the second coming, or are they the same event? Uh, we have historically taught the position that the, the rapture is first, it's the next thing, 
then there's a seven-year tribulational period, and then the Lord returns, the second coming, when he comes all the way to the earth, he establishes his throne in fulfillment of the Old Testament promises, and has this thousand-year reign, the millennial kingdom is described in the book of Revelation, in fulfillment of all those promises of the nation of Israel, when the, all of those covenants are ultimately completed, followed by the great white throne of judgment in the beginning of the new heavens and the new earth. Okay? What about the Jews? What about the rapture? Then there's the tribulation period, this time of judgment described in the bulk of the book of Revelation, chapter after chapter with all of those judgments, seals and bowls and, you know, just on and on and on of judgments. Uh, many people historically believe, well, that was just all the stuff we live in now. Some Christians in the ancient times and now some theologians in newer times have said, no, those judgments were ultimately completed in the, the destruction of Israel in, in AD 70. That, that's all it was talking about. Um, we believe, because we believe there's this, this, this rapture, the Lord returning for his saints, that, that as described in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, that then, then, then there will be a seven-year period of, of judgment which is depicted in all of those chapters in Revelation. And, and that's a very specific time, and we'll speak to that in just a second. So you have to decide, and then, and then you have to also decide, what does the kingdom mean? The Bible and, and the book of Revelation in particular speaks of a thousand-year millennial kingdom, thousand-year reign of the Lord on the earth. And, and, and historically, the majority of Christians said that's figurative, it's not real. But we, we have historically been a part of a tradition that says, no, the Lord, after his coming, he will, in order to fulfill his promises, he will sit on the throne and, and establish this thousand-year reign to fulfill all of those Old Testament promises, followed by the great judgment and the new heavens and earth. So you have these fundamental decisions that you make which affects how you understand prophecy in the New Testament and Old, in the books of Daniel and 1st, 2nd, 2nd and Thessalonians and Jude and Revelation and some of Matthew are these passages that are crucial in understanding how you respond to this. My father uh, was deeply impacted by a pastor who, was, who held to the position of this church and then he got disillusioned with it and went from being pre-millennial, in other words, the Lord will return before the millennial kingdom to, by the time he died, my father was a deep conviction of pan-millennialism, that is, that it'll all pan out in the end and I don't care. It, um, and um, um, a lot of Christians are right there. Um, but, but there's so much prophetic material in Scripture, you have, to, you have to read it and you have to work on it. And, and I wanted you to know this is kind of the framework that I'm looking at. Now, do I fellowship with Christians that disagree with me on this stuff? Heavens, yes. These are our friends. We, you know, we Christians forget who the enemy is. It's certainly not other Christians for crying out loud. We need all the friends we can get. Well, I in particular do, but we all do, right? It's not even our neighbor who doesn't know Jesus. He's not our enemy. She's not our enemy. Who's the enemy? Satan. The unbeliever isn't our enemy. The unbeliever is the victim of the enemy. And we've got to stop talking about our, our neighbors, our friends, those we live with as if they're enemies. They're, not, they're, they're, they're victims of the evil around us who desperately need to hear about Jesus' love, right? 
So in Second Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians, we pick up the theme of, of Paul's writing to the Thessalonian church because in chapter one he says they're losing hope. They're trying to do the right thing. They're trying to do the right thing, but there's all this persecution. And and my conviction, as I said last week, is chapter one is saying you can just grow weary of trying to do the right thing and feeling like you're getting nowhere. And the apostle Paul brings encouragement to that. Now in chapter two, he's going to address the big issue that was the motivation for the book. So if, if you will, turn it to your Bible, 2 Thessalonians, which is immediately after 1 Thessalonians. Verse 1. The concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and are be, being gathered to him. Now, if you believe that the rapture and the second coming are the same thing, he's speaking of the second coming, right? If you believe that he's referring to the rapture, it's just second from, separate from the second coming, he's speaking of the rapture. Either way, it makes sense he brings it up because that was what 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 were talking about, right? The Lord's return. All Orthodox Christians believe that the Lord is returning. That's a non-negotiable of our faith. But, but this issue that we would understand him to refer to the rapture, he says, now concerning that, um, we, we don't want you to become easily unsettled or alarmed, verse 2, by some prophecy, report, or letter that supposedly came from us saying that the day of the Lord had already come. He wrote this letter because he only, possibly only weeks after 1 Thessalonians, certainly less than a year, because word had come that the church was all uh, in a mess because they uh, woke up one day and said, you know what, we think we're in the day of the Lord. Day of the Lord is an Old Testament term used 19 times in the Old Testament, four times in the New Testament, and it refers to a time when God will focus judgment on the sin of the world and focus blessing on those who love him. It is, it is a term that is used very significantly of God finally acting out against sin and blessing obedience. So in, in our frame of reference, the day of the Lord would begin with the rapture when Jesus comes for his own and it ends with the end of the millennial kingdom and the great white judgment throne of judgment when God separates the sheep from the goats and judges right you with me oh never mind don't let anyone deceive you in any way for that day will not come and now he gives three things First, until the rebellion occurs. The first the, the characteristic of the, this time of tribulation, this, this day of the Lord, is um, a rebellion against God's truth. A, a mass desertion from God's truth. Secondly, the man of lawlessness is revealed. A man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or his worship so that he sets himself in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. This lawless one who, who I believe is referred to in the book of Daniel, is referred to as the Antichrist in 1 John, 
and spoken of extensively in Revelation in multiple places, especially in Revelation 13 as the beast who rises out of the sea. During the time of judgment, the day of the Lord, what we call the tribulation, there will be one whom, who Scripture calls the Antichrist who will lead the world in opposition to God's truth. And he says, it's not the day of the Lord unless you see these things. Right? You with me? Now, historically, Christians have always labeled certain people as Antichrist. Martin Luther was convinced it was the Pope. Uh, during World War II, many said, maybe it's Hitler. Um, in other words, we, when we see someone that we believe is in particular leading people away from the truth and doing great harm, there's a temptation to label them Antichrist. I personally think that there are always Antichrists. Well, Scripture says there are a lot of Antichrists, those who stand against God. But I think Satan always has in cue someone ready to be the Antichrist because Jesus himself said no one but the Father knows when these things will come to pass. So Satan doesn't know, so he's got to have a crew of them. So somewhere there's a little school for Antichrist. Uh, it's tempting, but I'm not going there. Um, it's tempting, but I, I'm not going there. Um, you're assuming... Um, in other words, and, and Gene Pond, ironically, who taught here for many years and taught at Dallas Seminary, had the same conviction. I, I think there are always Antichrists because Satan doesn't know. Satan always has someone ready. There is always on the verge of this culmination of history with the day of the Lord. And, and so there are always the seeds of those who are leaving the truth as taught by Scripture in a rebellion against all that is good. So there are people like Hitler who, who personify evil and Pol Pot and Idi Amin. I mean, throughout my lifetime, there have been multiple characters who, who you look at and say, they're just, they're just evil. And that's because Satan's always at work. We shouldn't be surprised. As Jesus himself, they'll always, they'll always oppose you. They hated me, why wouldn't they hate you? The, the reality is there will always be evil around us. So the apostle says the day of the Lord has not come and you know first of all because we have not seen the rebellion nor the man of lawlessness. In verses 5 through 12 he, he says but the lawless one will be defeated. Don't you remember that when I was with you he says I used to tell you these things and now you know what is holding him back so that he might be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so until he's taken out of the way. Who is the restrainer of evil? Very important in all of this. Look, I got a great email from someone I dearly love who is a non-believer but is very skeptical and struggling with Scripture, and he had read an email from a Christian that said, isn't it the grace of God that not these two mass murders, but the one before that, the guy didn't kill more people. He says, well, if it's the grace of God that he didn't kill more people, why, is it not, why didn't the grace of God keep him from killing anyone? Very fair question. Very legitimate question. And in my response to him, I, I simply said, uh, you know, we don't understand why God allows sin to keep going. He, he said in the garden, the very beginning of evil, you're going to bring death. In other words, he, he told us from the get-go, this is going to be bad if you rebel against me. And so he's warned us, and, we, we, and isn't it true that 
most of us bring difficulty on ourselves knowing full well what we're doing is going to bring difficulty. But Scripture does teach that if you think this is bad, wait till the, the one who restrains evil leaves. Wait till that time comes when God steps back and in many ways lifts his hand off of this earth. In other words, Scripture says if it weren't for God's active work, this world would explode in rebellion against all that's good and right. Now, the scholars have written for decades, forever, about what this restrainer is. Some said government. And, and for instance, Revelation, Romans starts with an R. Romans 13 says one of the functions of a human government is it, it punishes evil. And there is certainly an aspect of that. Um, one, one very significant commentary I read on this passage says, who knows, I don't know what the restrainer is. I'm thinking, well, why'd I buy your book? I mean, if I didn't want to know, I could have called Chris. I mean, you know, the, um, just had to do it once, buddy. Uh, only once, this service. Uh, the, I personally believe the restrainer is the Holy Spirit. In Genesis uh, chapter 6, the Spirit of God is referred to as of slowing the progression of evil. Job chapter 1 and 2 in that wild throne room appearance of Satan before God. It is God who chooses to hold back Satan's evil. God is the one who restrains evil. I, I think it's the Holy Spirit. And, and if, you, if you accept the idea of a pre-tribulational rapture, I know that's a long theological phrase, but if you believe that the Lord is coming, the next thing to happen is the Lord coming for his church, then, then when he takes the church up with him, then the Holy Spirit's influence leaves with the church, and that opens Pandora's box for great evil during the time of the transfiguration. It makes a lot of sense, in other words. Now, God is omnipresent. The Holy Spirit will still be here, but that influence of the church through his people will be gone. And, and men and women, I, I, it so discourages me when we act as if God's not doing anything. We have no idea how much evil God restrains through his people and through his spirit all the time. Because we, we bought the world's lie that people are basically good. And the reality is we live in a world of people like you and I who are capable, who are capable of doing despicable things. And, and God, is, in his grace, withholds that evil, restrains that evil enough for his gospel to be proclaimed so that whoever will can come. So that's the third characteristic that, that the apostle makes, is that the, the, the restrainer is removed and this lawless one has a heyday. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom... He will make himself evident whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles and signs and wonders. In other words, the Antichrist will put on a great show and everyone will fall for it. And every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing, they perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie. In other words, how can it be this bad? Well, because when they reject Christ, they become more and more deluded. 
You ever tried to say, uh, tell the gospel to a friend and, and just realize how deeply they have bought into ideas that are so far from the truth? Because Satan wants them diluted. But we love them, we don't condemn them. So that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delight in weakness. Ultimately, as we said last week, Scripture says there will be judgment. This, this man of lawlessness, in, in, in other words, Scripture, the, the Bible says he, he will put on quite a show. In fact, here it says that he will go to the holy place. And, and there's a reference here in history. Antiochus Epiphanes in 167 B.C. had had slaughtered a pig on the altar in the temple and then moved into the Holy of Holies and declared himself God. So this, not without um, Caligula, one of the emperors, declared himself God and said everyone should worship him. That was one of the reasons Christians would be persecuted, not because they worshiped Christ as God, but because they declared Caesar couldn't be. Um, Herod Agrippa I, according to Josephus, put on quite a show in Caesarea, put on a silver outfit and went to the theater to speak and chose the time when the sun would reflect off of his silver clothing. And they all declared, Herod is God, Herod is God. And he said, you finally know. And five days later, he died, according to Josephus, in God's judgment. for. In other words, in the, in the first century, it was not unusual for political leaders to claim deity. And, and when you think about it, it's not that far a step from some of the political rulers we see around the world that they could get to that point, right? So the Apostle Paul is just trying to say to him, it is not the day of the Lord yet. This time of prophecy has not come. The Lord hasn't returned, and, and, and these three characteristics of that time of lawlessness not, have not yet occurred. So what do we do? Look at the last paragraph with me, verse 13. But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers, loved by the Lord, because from the beginning God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. Um, so it's not enough we need to talk about all the prophetic word of God, but then he brings up election too. Um, um, just, just to give me something to talk about. Uh, notice he says God has chosen you. Now, some of us were raised in a tradition where we heard this idea that God chose, chooses those who are his own, called election. We, we, we have always understood that. Uh, and, and ultimately, it, to me, the explanation I have for it is that God is infinite. He's beyond space and time. And he intervenes in your and my salvation in the limits of time and space. And how does he explain that? In other words, he's describing truths that we can't comprehend. Uh, his sovereignty is infinite. So, so he, he sovereignly ultimately is behind everything that happens. And yet he's not responsible for evil. I don't understand that. Um, scripture says that I am responsible for my choice the way I respond when I hear the gospel. But Scripture also says he's sovereignly in control of all that. I don't understand that. Um, I, I do know the, that, that as God, he is absolutely sovereign over everything. And, and that if I don't accept his complete sovereignty, then I will tend to th replace his sovereignty with mine. But I also know that the scripture says each of us is responsible for the decision we make. 
And that's where we live, right? If you want to talk about election more, call me or Chris, and we'll, we'll help you with it. But, but that's not the emphasis of the passage. But he saved you through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, through the belief in truth, and he called you. And so what do you do? Verse 15, stand firm and hold to the teachings we passed on to you. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope. Encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and work. What do we do? Stand firm and keep doing good and saying good. In other words, one of the things, one of the things that's bad about prophetic teaching is sometimes it becomes a distraction from obedience. My old boss, Dr. Walford, the seminary, wrote all these books on prophecy. He said, you know, I go to prophecy conferences, and it's just all about knowing about prophecy. That's not the point. He said, the point is when you, you see that God is in control and God is at work, fundamentally what it drives you to is what are we supposed to do? Well, we're supposed to represent him in the meantime. We're supposed to do his work and speak his word, express his love, declare sin what it is, but then yet and show mercy and grace as was shown to us. We're called to represent him, to be salt and light in a broken world. We don't read that stuff just to read more books. We read that stuff to be motivated, the knowledge that he is in control and his plan will work. And in the meantime, we have the privilege of being a part of his work and, and be encouraged that even though it looks awful right now and it does he is yet in control and he's not surprised by anything and his grace is enough for anyone and that there is no one that's so broken that embracing the mercy and grace of God can't change their hearts and so our speech should be seasoned with grace because the person we're talking to needs to be impressed that Jesus loves them. And our deeds should be reflective of his mercy because that's who we represent. But all too often we believers have fallen into the very system of the world where we're saying awful things and busy doing the wrong thing. We, we, we got the work of the Lord to do because Jesus is coming back. And I don't know how long it's going to be. But you and I have the privilege of being salt and light in the meantime. I mean, Jesus said, if, if one of you gives a cup of water to a child in my name, it's as if you did it for me. Isn't that amazing? If you speak grace into someone's life, you've done it for him. And if you've loved someone enough that they'll actually choose to hear you describe the gospel of his grace and you introduce them to the Savior of the world who, who came to earth, even though he's the Son of God, gave his life on the cross for the sins of the world, was resurrected on the third day. When, when we, we live in a way as a people to earn the right to tell the story of Jesus, what greater privilege is there? Because he says in chapter 1, He'll get to judging. We'll be with him. But in the meantime, in the meantime, we represent Jesus. And what a privilege.
Thank God that children's workers in a little Presbyterian church in Tyler loved the little burr-headed boy that was a bit of a problem at times. Thank God that somebody stepped into your life and said, let me tell you about the one who gave his life for me and you. Who's he calling you and me to? Let's pray. Father, we confess that we can pretty, be pretty rotten witnesses. And we can get caught up in all the evil of the world around us, either to lose hope or to become too much like it. And in either case, we lose the opportunity to represent you well. Father, fix our hearts so strongly on you that no matter what happens around us, we don't lose heart or lose faith. Help us to stand firm to serve you well. In Jesus' name, amen.